Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hi. Hi. I got a couple of things to say. First of all, I've missed you. I've missed doing this. I missed teaching with you. And we're going to do that. So I am directing today's conversation. Okay. (laughs) I mean, there are, there are a ton of things that we could talk about. I mean, really pressing things. Yeah. I mean, um, the Supreme Court decision about abortion has just got me reeling. I'm sure it does you too. And a bunch of other people. Yeah. Or I fear that the gates that it's opened leaves so many other things vulnerable. Yep. And so, but we could talk about that. Maybe next week we'll talk about some of that when we get a little clearer on on whatever. But we have not done this for a couple of weeks because you've been Mm -hmm. Darwining. Darwining. I've been Darwining. Um, I've been a verb. Yes, it is now. You just made it one. So I think it works. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am amazed by the landscape that I was just in. Well, tell people where you've been, why you went, how long you were gone. Yeah. So I was in Ecuador, both in the Galapagos Islands and also in the part of Ecuador that is a rainforest. It's called Baños which means bath or bathroom (laughs) in Spanish. Um, It's kind of a uh, a a waterfall rich area um, with some volcanoes, with uh, a fern and moss forest, like nothing I have ever seen. Like you just wanna curl up in these ferns and mosses and go to sleep because it's so rich and verdant. Wow. Um, Yeah. So, you know, Ecuador as a place I've never been, and I was, we went with my son's school who takes an annual trip there because the director of his school is Ecuadorian and loves to take groups of kids back to his country and show them around. Um, and it was, it was completely magical, but magical makes it feel like it's otherworldly. So it was also completely grounding in this world completely grounding in this sense of time that, you know, we walk on an earth every single day that's millions of years old. But it's hard to have that sense of that age in the city because it's been industrialized, it's been concretized, it's been humanized, right? But in the Galapagos, because it's a protected area, it hasn't been, of course, it's developing. Of course, it has homes and businesses and boats and lots of diesel in the ocean, but but it's also a protected area. And so you're in this space where you actually see the age of the earth right in front of you. And it's stunning. It's it's stunning. It, it makes you feel, to kind of borrow Neil deGrasse Tyson's words, it makes you feel both small and enormously enormously huge because you're part of this thing that is millions and billions of years old wow well so you took kids how what were the age ranges kids were between sixth grade so my kid was the youngest on no not quite the youngest 
And then there were 12th graders. So there were about 15 kids on the trip with us and um, three of us were families. So if we had a middle schooler on the trip, we had to, they had to be accompanied by an adult and, you know, twist my arm. Okay, I'll go. <laughs> um, and so it was a bit, it was a really lovely group of kids. Um, I, I, I learned there are three kids there who are going to college next year to study marine biology. So, um, so they taught me a ton about, I learned, for example, that um, a group of sharks is called a shiver of sharks. I did not know that. A, what? a shiver of sharks. Huh. Yeah. I, I snorkeled with sharks. Uh-oh. That would take <laughs> Does that explain the missing right arm? You can't, yeah, I'm just yeah. kidding. Well, did you yeah. feel that was risky? No. So, you know, I respond really well um, to logic. And um, because otherwise I get in my anxious brain. I do have a kind of unfounded, unreal, it's not unrealistic, but it's an unfounded fear of sharks. Um, I grew up in the generation of Jaws and I actually could never still have never watched that movie because I just have this kind of irrational fear of sharks. I also have an irrational fear of cockroaches, but um, it's um, <laughs> but the sharks are reality based in some ways. But I asked a couple there who was with us who has done a lot of diving, a lot of scuba diving. Um, and I said, so tell me just the logical approach to swimming with sharks, what, how you've done it before. And they said, you know, don't hand it your arm. And if you don't mess with it, it won't mess with you. And these sharks were called white tipped sharks and black tipped sharks, and they don't get much bigger than six feet. So they're really not that interested in us as prey. And they hover close to the bottom, but they were four feet below me. So I feel like I conquered a little fear over this trip and wow. yeah. And, and it wasn't just one shark, it was dozens, <laughs> dozens of them. Um, what, what, across the board, can you summarize what the kids' responses were? Oh, um, you know, the high schoolers are more reserved about their responses, but because, you know, they're cool. <laughs> um, but what I saw when I, so I love teenagers. I've taught teenagers my whole life. Um, it's just a really precious time to me. And what I love doing was just kind of engaging one-on-one -on -one with each of the kids at different times. And when I engaged with the kids one-on-one, -on -one, I really saw them light up. The kids, for example, that are studying marine biology, they just like were nonstop when I asked them about the different marine life and what they wanted to study and they would point things out to me. So I could tell that individually there was a lot of awe, but collectively when you're with a group of teenagers, it's kind of, you know, subdued. You're checking for everybody else's response too. Mm -hmm. My kid, this may make me weepy. <laughs> He's 12 and he is in love with geography and he has he asks for atlases every year for either his birthday or Christmas. He has made a travel list of places he'd like to visit. And the Galapagos was third on his list. So when this trip came up, I was like, well, let's just go. Um, he is a kiddo who is historically pretty risk averse. Um, he's kind of like the lone wolf. He circles the pack for a bit and then he'll decide to join. Um, he tried everything. He did 
everything with such enthusiasm and such interest and such awe in the moment that, I mean, there actually was a moment on the second to last day where I was just streaming with tears watching him because he just, he really lived life during these two weeks and he had an underwater camera. So with every underwater adventure we were having, he was just filming the whole thing. And he said to me at one point, the water was quite cold where we were snorkeling and he was shivering and we had wetsuits on, but he's like got 0% body fat. So he, he said, my body is freezing, but my mind is alive. (laughs) (laughs) And that about sums up how he felt during these two weeks, but I was just immensely proud of him for trying everything. So, yeah. (laughs) Did you see those big tortoises? Oh my gosh. So two amazing things that the first day we were on the Galapagos, we went to the Charles Darwin research center and that's on um, the Island of Santa Cruz. And it's the more developed Island. It's the most populated Island in the Galapagos, not the largest, just the most populated. And, um, and these, so they're rehabbing these tortoises. They are, um, you know, some of them are going, we're going towards extinction because of pirates killing them for meat. There's some, a really cruel thing that pirates used to do, which is they would take the turtles or the tortoises and turn them over on their backs because tortoises have such a slow metabolism that they can live for a year without eating. And they would slowly kill these tortoises. And so many tortoises went nearly extinct over this period of time that they were being pirated. And there's two things. One, each island in the Galapagos has a slightly different variety of tortoises, just as Hmm. Darwin also found that each island has a slightly different variety of finch. So this is how he began to conceive of evolution, that things adapt and change based on their circumstances, as opposed to just planted here as an intact being. Right. Um, so these tortoises, some of them are marked 200 years old. You're looking at something that will, that has already lived longer than you or I will ever live, you know? And mm-hmm. in this, Brian McLaren in his book about the Galapagos writes about leisure being the tortoises kind of MO, if you will, that the tortoise has mastered leisure and that perhaps that's what keeps it alive all of these years. <laughs> But hmm. yeah, no, they're gigantic and amazing and slow and slothful and pensive or so they seem, but yeah. And then the sea turtles where we swam is an area of the world that's known to have some of the oldest sea turtles because every animal that's been studied in the Galapagos has it is tagged so they can track it and keep up with it and know when it dies, know when it's population is dwindling, et cetera. And um, the sea turtles are, you know, four feet around easily. And some of them are up Mm -hmm. to 150 to 200 years old. And Caleb and I were snorkeling over this volcanic rock formation and a sea turtle arose and swam inches under our belly, just drifted right underneath us. And it was just, so magical. Wow. Yeah. 
sea turtles i think uh one of my wife's favorite creatures yeah she really thinks they're they're wonderful you know her nickname is turtle i know uh, <laughs> yeah she likes that yeah so um i want to get i want to get back to, to you in a minute but Darwin didn't come up with a, quote, theory of evolution, did he? That's a myth. Well, he was one of the forerunners in establishing evolution as a way of thinking about time. His contribution, even more than the theory of evolution, was a theory of adaptation, how, okay. how creatures adapt. And what he studied primarily were the finches that who he would see slight variations in beak size and width and coloring based on mm -hmm. what they were eating and how they had to get their food. And that the finches that adapted to their environment in this way were the ones that survived. So mm -hmm. then we have this theory of survival of the fittest, which Darwin so Darwin, this is like the really interesting part. Um, Darwin went to the Galapagos, a creationist. And, and yes, he was, he, so he was headed towards priesthood. But he also had this growing interest in biology and the natural world. He's not a trained, he wasn't a trained biologist per se, but he spent so much time in that space and he began to observe life and its adaptations in this ancient volcanic rock. And he was like, this earth wasn't created in six days. And he has this crisis of faith. And he sits with that for almost a decade. He's writing through it. He's observing. He continues to do research and examine species. But he sits with his growing suspicion that maybe this earth is a lot older than we think it is. You know, at that time, the 6,000-year theory was still really popular. And, um, but he sat with it for a decade because apparently Darwin is described as this really sensitive, thoughtful, um, deliberate person. Over that decade, he stopped going to church over time because he just couldn't grapple anymore with what was being said mm -hmm. and what he knew to be true. And someone else, I'm forgetting his name right now, also was coming up with this theory of evolution, of deep time evolution, wrote Darwin a letter and said, if you don't publish, I am. So Darwin kind of, because he knew he had done this work. Do you know who that person was? I just can't remember his name right now. I'll put it in the notes. Um, Hopkins, was it Hopkins? Anyways, um, it's a famous name. It, it, biologists know it much faster than I do. <laughs> um, but, but Darwin then started to sort of put out works about what he was seeing, which eventually led to the, um, his famous work, The Origin of Species. And, um, you know, his crisis of faith led to a deepening for all of us, I think, a potential deepening for all of us. So this is a really great lesson, I think, that when we are in crisis, when we are uncomfortable and when we are challenged, there's actually growth on the other side if you lean into that crisis, if you lean into what's making you uncomfortable mm -hmm. and really look at it. And Darwin did that. His wife never got on board. 
she she oh. yeah she remained uh, a creationist and asked him to please consider the words of wait for it John <laughs> do you not believe that Jesus gave or God gave his only son so that you would be saved and Darwin said no not anymore hmm. you know I I don't want to get off of yeah. this topic but I want to put a little parenthesis in here. Um, I think we have a tendency uh, to uh, idealize some of the forerunners of the modernist movement in this country, which is one of the things I'm going to talk about in Ordinary Life on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And I was looking this morning for an, uh, a biography of Harry Emerson Foster, mm -hmm. because I've never read one. And, the one, and there's not one on Kindle. There is one that you can buy from Amazon mm -hmm. for a hundred bucks, oh, but yeah. I thought, ooh, I don't think so. Yeah. I, I, I resent it that some book sellers gouge people on Amazon, but that's another, that's a whole nother thing. Mm -hmm. um, we idealize the modernists. You know, when the modernist fundamentalist controversy happened a hundred years ago, the modernists still interpreted the Bible literally. Mm -hmm just differently than the fundamentalist. Mm. So as there was a fundamentalist would say in the story of Jesus walking on water, yes, he literally walked on water. The modernist would say, no, he walked on the shore near the water and the disciples in the boat just thought he was walking on water, right. but they still took the Bible literally. Yeah. They had not embraced, I've come up with a new phrase as of today, uh -huh. they, have, they had not embraced the gift of metaphor. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it took Darwin a lot of courage to do that. Yeah. You know, you think about sort of the simultaneous occurrences that were happening around that time. Darwin and Einstein overlapped in years. Um, you know, similarly, Einstein, who also came up with a theory of expansion and in an infinite universe, waited for a long time to release that theory because he was terrified of what it would do to people. And he was terrified for himself even. He knew that what, what, what the backlash he would get. Darwin protected his own well-being in that way too because he knew that he could actually, you know, he knew what happened to Galileo, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's he was self-protective, but on the other hand, he was also trying to protect this kind of worldview from being, he was trying to protect people from being sent into crisis. But the other thing that I read about Darwin is that he was also thinking, oh my gosh, if this gets into the hands of autocrats and um, purists, racial purists, they'll bastardize this theory. And they did. That's what social Darwinism became. Social Darwinism became this idea of um, the survival of the fittest being the Aryan race, right? And it's and, and, and it began to support things like capitalism and imperialism. People took this theory and used it to support terrible behaviors. You know, so he also sat with it because he knew that if this got into the hands of the public, that it would be misused. Mm. I never thought of that. Yeah, it's a good insight. Yeah. So was there for you personally on this trip? some huge aha that we've not talked about? Mm. Um, you know, this, the broad level is this very deep sense of geologic time. 
Um, my professor, Brian Thomas Swim says, if you leave a pile of ash alone long enough, it becomes a giraffe. <laughs> and you see in the Galapagos piles of ash. There's, there's three kinds of lava. There's one called pohoihoi, <laughs> one called aa, and the other is ash. And pohoihoi is this, it's an, a Hawaiian name, is the blackened lava that once erupted from a volcano and then hardened and blackened and became dark volcanic rock. The aa is the reddish volcanic rock that comes later and may burn a hole through the existing black rock, but it dries as kind of this reddish clay. And then the ash is the fine sand-like substance. And those three types of lava together are indicative of geologic time, you know? And so for me, it was seeing that, seeing the traces of the last volcanic eruption, seeing where it ended and where plant life could grow, mm -hmm. seeing where animals um, have made almost like playful jungle gyms out of these volcanic tunnels and they swim in between them. So this leads me to like a very specific thing, the seemingly most barren thing, volcanic rock contains so much life, little organisms, uh, birds that feed out of the holes or make homes in the holes, uh, turtles eat the moss that grows off of it. You know, so there's so much life in this supposedly dead rock. And in some parts of the ocean, there are these volcanic fumaroles. So these kind of tunnel-like formations, middle of the ocean, growing cactuses out of them. And these- How does that happen? <laughs> go figure. These cactuses over time have adapted to assault air and water. I mean, how do they get there? Birds, perhaps, dropping seeds, right? But they stay there. So it's not just that they got there once and then grew and died. They perpetuate. So for me, the most incredible thought was life perpetuates. Creativity perpetuates. Mm. And considering the state of the world we're living in right now, that felt like a very hopeful thought. Creativity perpetuates and life perpetuates in the most unlikely circumstances. The kids who went on this trip, their lives will never be the same. Oh, I 100% agree. Um, I'm so lucky to have, to have this kid who in the moment can just say, mommy, I'm so glad we're here. And I just got to experience that with him i will i am forever changed getting to do this with my son yeah. you know how cool <laughs> so yeah you know i i sometimes look at the landscape in america at least the things that have the loudest megaphones and get the most media attention and kind of have a tendency to be discouraged and despair but there are also stories of these wonderful things that happen Two, I will mention one is the 14 year old girl in Pennsylvania, and she's just one of many. Mm. I understand now that I've read the story who 
went to her library and got permission to start a band book club. Oh yeah. There's a band book club at my son's school. Yeah. <laughs> that's wonderful <laughs> that these kids <laughs> are taking it on themselves to read the books that are being banned by adults. Yeah. And the girl in Pennsylvania said, there's stuff in these books that we need to know that will help us live better when we become adults. Absolutely. That's very encouraging. Yeah. And somebody sent me a video this week, which I'm going to try to figure out a way to show on Sunday, about this teacher who has this group of kids. They've got to be seven, mm-hmm. seven or eight, maybe younger. And he brings a box into the class and puts it on a chair at the front of the class. And he says, I want you to know that I have put a photograph in here. I put a picture in here of my favorite student. (laughs) And you're welcome to come and look at it. So the video, the kid's going to look at it. It's a mirror. It's a mirror. (sighs) And you can tell when each child looks in the box, their face just goes. Yeah. Oh. I, I Sorry, I interrupted that. But that aha moment was like, oh, that's I had the aha moment just as you were saying it. That's beautiful. That's and that, and he's a that's great. Teacher. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that I think. Um, yeah, I mean, our kids need to feel loved. They need to feel wanted. They need to feel belonging and belonging is so strange because some people get belonging out of being part of hate groups, right? Um, because it, it, it shoulders their fear. It allows their fear to, to live as a living, breathing thing. Um, and then there's belonging that's expansive, right? There's belonging that's restrictive and there's belonging that's expansive. And that is belonging that's expansive, showing a kid themselves, mirroring back to our kids the very best of themselves is exactly what they need from us, you know? Yeah, and I, I would put on that list that you mentioned about what children need is that they need to feel safe. They need to feel safe. And what's, again, safety has an, a restrictive component and an expansive component, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think I'm really concerned about... I. I will mention this here because it um, feels appropriate. These restrictive senses of belonging and safety that seem to be tightening, that seem to have the loudest megaphone right now. I understand that these groups are seeking belonging and safety too, but they want it at everybody else's expense. It's trickling down to the kids. So the other part is that kids are sitting at the feet of people with the loudest megaphones right now. And I shared with you yesterday that some, another young kid called my kid, the N word. And Mm. it's neither surprising nor unbelievable, but it's terrible. And this perpetuated by a child who's probably hearing it, whatever he's hearing at home on the media there's a sense of being emboldened right now. And um, I'm just curious, how do we make safety and belonging feel expansive and inclusive of the people who are holding on to their fear right now? You know, mm. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I um, 
as you know, because we talk about it a lot, I have a lot of trouble with organized religion. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the things I will say, though, that St. Paul's, who's um, the kind of platform that we, we are using, does have a group called Rainbow, mm-hmm. where children can uh, of all ages can come and explore with each other uh, in, a, in a safe environment their emerging sexuality mm, yeah. and um, feel safe to talk about it. And I think, especially in a place where that's, that's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, oh, anyway, we're getting away from Galapagos. <laughs> I'm glad you had that experience. It's, uh, I, I'm, I envy it. You got pictures to share? I have like a million pictures. <laughs> I haven't even gone through my son's pictures that are um, underwater and, you know, we haven't even downloaded his yet. So we got it. What we, what he and I decided we were going to do was to create a slideshow for our family. I have an idea. What's your idea? (laughs) You're you and Caleb come and speak in ordinary life about Galapagos. Oh, that'd be awesome. I'll see if he wants to speak. He may just want to stand there, (laughs) but but he may get excited when he gets to show. That would be great. Oh, wouldn't that be? And then we could put it. Yeah, yeah. And then we could put it on the website. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But I'd li- yeah. I'd like to see that. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad you're back safe and sound. So I got you a t-shirt. The t-shirt yeah. I wanted to get you, um, I should have acted upon because I didn't see it again. Um, and this says, the evolution revolution. I need it. That's yours. It's Charles Darwin. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. All right. Yeah. All right. Love you. Love you too. Home Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye.